Good morning. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Jan. Thank you. Good morning, Jan. Uh, welcome all you who are joining us online as well. Glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, hope you are enjoying a blessed new year so far. We are starting a series, have started a series, uh, Who Is This Man? And we're taking a few weeks and we're talking about who Jesus is and the difference that he makes. And I mentioned last week that you all probably feel, you all probably feel like you've got a pretty good handle on who Jesus is and the difference he makes. Just like the guys who were in the boat with him during the storm. They thought they had a pretty good handle on who Jesus was too, but he surprises them with a different side and a different, uh, a different power. And last week I shared with you John 14 where Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father. And Jesus makes that statement to his disciples towards the end of his time on earth. They had been around Jesus. They had spent three intense years with Jesus. They'd seen the miracles. They'd heard the teaching. In fact, John says, if we were to write down everything we saw, everything we heard, there wouldn't be enough books to contain it. So it's at that point in time when Jesus tells them, if you really knew me, you'd know my Father as well. And that's why I love what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians towards the end of his life. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So we're going to be looking at Jesus because we want to better know Jesus and we want to know the difference that he makes. And I want to talk to you specifically this morning about trust. Most people find it very difficult to really trust others. I mean, we want to, right? We want to trust each other. We want to live in a world where we can feel like we trust each other. But usually, we set some limits on just how far we're going to go with our trust, right? Heard a story about a guy who was traveling years ago in Alabama, and he stopped at uh, you know one of those hot Alabama days, and he stops by a roadside stand where a farmer is selling watermelons. And he picks one out, and he takes it to the farmer, and he says, how much do I owe you for the watermelon? The farmer says, a dollar and ten cents. He goes through his pockets and says, all I have is one dollar bill. And the farmer says, that's okay, I'll trust you for it. And he turns around and starts to walk away, and the farmer says, where are you going? He said, I'm going to go enjoy my watermelon. But you didn't give me the dollar. The guy said, I thought you said you'd trust me for it. He said, I'll trust you for the dime, not the dollar. <laughs> uh, we're pretty quick to put stipulations on our level of trust, aren't we? The guy didn't trust him at all. He was just taking a 10-cent gamble on his integrity. Uh, trust is hard to earn. And it's just as hard to grant. It's not easy to trust people. In fact, I think it sort of goes against our nature to trust people until that person has proven themselves trustworthy. Well, we're going to talk about trusting Jesus. We're going to talk about trusting God, who have certainly proven themselves to be faithful and trustworthy. And yet we all sort of struggle about, with going all in on trust, right? I mean, we'll trust God with the dime, we're a little bit hesitant to trust them with the dollar. You know, just, just ask a new Christian who believed that his life was going to be so much easier when he became a follower of Jesus. 
only to find out that in a lot of ways life got harder. You know, ask the husband who's been praying for a sick wife and his prayers seem to go unanswered. Ask the parents of a prodigal who have wandered off and doesn't seem like they're showing any signs of coming home. In this series, we're talking about the unorthodox, the unusual, the, the countercultural way of Jesus. And this morning, I want to talk about how Jesus teaches us about trust. And it's, it's different. You know, when we think of trust, maybe the best known verse in the Bible about trust is Proverbs chapter 3. I quoted it just a couple years, or a couple years, yeah, years too, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Solomon says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll make your paths straight. Again, it's a really easy verse to understand, isn't it? But boy, is it hard to put into practice. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Okay, I get what that means, but I'm not sure I'm really ready to do that. Lean not on your own understanding. But my default mode is sort of to figure it out on my own. My first option is usually, I'm going to lean on my own understanding because I think I can figure it out. I think I can solve this situation. Why would I trust in the Lord with all my heart? Why would I do that? This morning, I'm not going to give you three points. Instead, I'm going to give you one sentence. But I am breaking that one sentence down into three parts. There you go. Uh, Here's the first part of the one sentence. Since God is God. That's the starting point. Since God is God. We have to acknowledge that there is a higher power. That there is a divine being. The one and true God. Now the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's one who created everything. There's one who spoke the world into existence from nothing. Jeremiah chapter 10, the prophet says this, that God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom. He stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from the storehouses. God is God. And in this world, we have always experienced the presence of a very powerful, very personal God. Here's the second part of our sentence. Since God is God, and since He is in control, and we'll stop right there for just a minute. Since God is God, and since He is in control, I'll remind you of the Old Testament character Job. Remember Job, who had some really great things happen to him, and then had some really bad things happen to him, and then had some really great things happen to him? But in his season of crisis, in his season of pain, you remember Job kind of cries out to God, what's going on? Why is all this happening to me? He's asking God questions, and if you remember, and I'm sure you probably do, God replies with a few questions of his own. Uh, Chapter 38, this is God speaking to Job. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. 
Who stretched a measuring line across it? On where were its footings set? On who laid its cornerstone? And then God goes a couple chapters into just asking Job questions. Questions that only God can ask and questions that only God could answer. And God wants Job to be sure he understands God is the creator. Job, you are the created. And when we say, since God is God and since he is in control, we're acknowledging something. We're acknowledging that we aren't in control. So I'm going to have to learn to trust God. I'm going to have to learn to trust God when everything's going great. When everything's going my way. And I'm going to have to learn to trust God when things aren't going so well. I'm going to have to learn to trust God when I can see how the story's going to end. And I'm going to have to learn to trust God when I don't have any idea how it's going to play out. One of the most famous stories in Scripture is found in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 3. It's a story of three Hebrew guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are living in Babylon, living in exile at the time under the reign of a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90-foot statue out of gold, an idol. And he gives a decree to everyone in the land, when you hear the music play, you are to bow down to this statue. And everyone in Babylon does just that, with the exception of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to do it. These Hebrew men believe that there is only one true God that deserves to be worshipped. And, of course, when the king hears about this, uh, he brings Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, and he tells them this. I will give you one more chance. If you bow down and worship the statue I have made, when you hear the sound of the musical instruments, all will be well. But if you refuse you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then he asks a question to these three men that he thinks is a rhetorical question. What God will be able to rescue you from my power then? King Nebuchadnezzar is fully believing, I hold all the cards here. I have all the power. I am in control. And of course, you probably know their response to the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. And you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar is enraged. He fires up the furnace seven times hotter, so hot that even those men who are bringing the three Hebrews to their death, they're they're consumed by the fire. The famous theologian uh, Johnny Cash describes the scene this way. Now, when the three were cast in, the king rose up to witness that evil fate, witness their evil fate. He began to tremble at what he saw. With astonished tones, he spake. Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of that fire? Well, lo, I see four men unbound, unhurt, and walking down there. They're Shadrach, Meshach, and Bendigo on the the burning coals they trod. And the form of the fourth man that I see is like the Son of God. Look it up on YouTube. 
They wouldn't bend, they wouldn't bow, they wouldn't burn. It's great. It is. Their God did rescue them. They were rescued. And so the king makes a new decree. And the king's decree is everyone in Babylon now has to worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there was going to be a penalty if you didn't. Remember, there was a penalty if you didn't bow down to the, uh, the statue. There's a penalty now if you don't bow down to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Anybody know what the penalty was? The king said, your body will be cut into small pieces and your home will be destroyed. That was the new penalty. Read your Bible. There are amazing things in the Bible. Personally, once my body is cut into tiny pieces, I don't really care what you do with my house. But, um, you know, that's the outcome of three men who trusted God. How does that happen? It happens when someone has the faith to say, I trust my God. When things work out like I hope they do, and even if things don't work out like I hope, he's still God. Okay, let's jump to the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are two different stories about two different women who do the same thing. Two women who, um, well, what they do is they both wash Jesus' feet using their hair. One of these women does it because she's been forgiven much. Another woman does it because she loves much. Uh, Two different women washing Jesus' feet with their hair. What's going on here? Well, the woman in uh, John chapter 12 is one of those stories. Uh, This woman trusts Jesus. She loves Jesus. She actually gets some expensive perfume and anoints Jesus' feet and then wipes it with her hair. What's going on here? Why would she do that? Well, To understand her trust and her love in chapter 12, we really need to understand her doubts in John chapter 11. Let me explain. The woman in John chapter 12's name is Mary. She has a sister named Martha. She has a brother named Lazarus. And you all immediately recognize that family. Lazarus is the man that Jesus raised from the dead. John chapter 11 tells us that Lazarus is gravely ill. He lives in Bethany. Jesus and his disciples are are nowhere near Bethany. So the sisters send word to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus gets a frantic message from these sisters, Mary and Martha. Lord, the one you love is sick. Read between the lines. You're always healing people you don't even know. You're always helping total strangers. You're always taking care of people you've just met and probably you'll never see again. Well, the one you know, the one you love is sick. We need you. We need you right here, right now. We need you to heal our brother. Verse 4. Verse 4. There we go. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, don't miss something very important here. 
Two people just said something very important here. Jesus says something very significant in verse 4. John says something very significant in verse 5. In verse 4, Jesus chooses his words very carefully. This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And then seemingly for no apparent reason, John chooses to interject in the narrative, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John pauses the story to tell us Jesus loved this family. And of course, if we didn't know the story, we would think, well, as soon as Jesus got the message, he'd be like, we've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to get back to Bethany. The one I love is sick. Pack your bags. But right after John tells us Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, the very next verse says this. There we go. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So two days go by, and then Jesus says, okay, let's, let's go to Judea. Let's go to Bethany. The sisters are waiting for Jesus. They, they are waiting for Jesus to show up. They're desperate for Jesus to show up, and one day becomes two, and the second day stretches into the third day, and the third day becomes the fourth day, and he doesn't come. Jesus... Jesus doesn't come. And finally, by the time Jesus does get there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. What do you do when God makes you wait? What do you do when God doesn't respond when you expect Him and when you feel like you need Him to respond? Well, when Jesus finally does get there, one of the sisters goes out and meets Him and she says something to Him. And they have a conversation. And then the other sister also goes out to see Jesus, and she says the exact same thing to him. Remember what it was that both sisters said to Jesus? Lord, if you'd been here, he would not have died. Both sisters say the same thing. And I've heard it argued that both sisters were accusing Jesus of a failure, of letting them down. Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Way to go. Thanks a lot. I've also heard it argued, and I'm kind of leaning towards this camp, that these sisters were actually honoring Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And I don't know which it is. I don't, maybe somewhere in between. I don't know the tone. I don't know the inflection. But I do know this. Both of these women are heartbroken. They are hurting. They are grieving the loss of their brother. And I am sure both of these women had to have been wondering, why didn't you come? Why didn't you come? We needed you, and you weren't here. We waited. We hoped. Mary's crying. Everyone around her is crying. They're at the tomb. Jesus is crying. And then Jesus said, roll the stone away. And everybody's like, uh, yeah, not so sure that's a great idea. Jesus, I know you weren't here for the funeral. I know you didn't get a chance to, you know, pay your last respects, but you really don't want to roll that stone away. Yeah, it's not going to be pleasant if you roll the stone away. And just to make sure you understand what's happening here, I'll give you a quote from the King James Version. 
Martha said, Lord, by this time, he stinketh. That's what's going on. You don't want to move that stone four days later. He's been dead for four days. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus is in total control. Jesus knows he's right on time. And so they roll the stone away, and everybody, I'm sure, sort of winced as they did. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walks out, take the grave clothes off him, and they do. And it's this incredible miracle that people have been talking about ever since. We're talking about it today. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice something in the narrative here. Look again. John, of course, is writing this long after it happened. Okay? And when he's writing it, it, it finally makes sense to him. And I think maybe he chose to insert that one random fact for a reason. I think he chose to insert what he, what he told us to, so we could get a, a, an idea of the big picture. Because the sisters plead with Jesus. Jesus, you need to come, verse 3. And then two verses later we read, Jesus didn't come. But sandwiched in between that, John tells us, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Why did John stick that information in there? An editor would tell you it's not a good place for it. It doesn't, it doesn't help the narrative. An editor would have told John that doesn't move the story along. But the Holy Spirit put it in there, I think, for us. Now, John was always giving us information that we need to know later on. It's part of his, it's part of his uh, way of writing. Now, a couple times in his gospel, he would say something about <clears throat> Judas Iscariot, who would later betray Jesus. Hadn't happened yet, but he would later betray Jesus. Now, he, John would have been like a, like a, a terrible movie director, right? Now, spoiler alert! You know, don't tell us yet! John's always given us information that's going to help us understand later on. And I think, I think that's what he's doing here in chapter 11. He's given us some, some information that's going to help us with our understanding. John is telling us the sisters wanted Jesus to come. Now, you're going to read the next line that's not going to make sense to you. You're going to read what Jesus does, and it's going to seem odd. In fact it's going to seem a little bit cruel. But I want you to know something. I want you to read it against the backdrop of some really important information. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Have you ever felt like Jesus didn't show up when you really needed him to show up? You know, your, your marriage is spinning out of control and like, you know, we really need God to show up here. Maybe it's a friendship, it's gone sideways, and you know, there's a lot of pain there, and you'd really like God to be involved. Maybe it's your job, you've lost your job, your income's cut back, your expenses go up, and you know, you're on the verge of losing everything that you've worked so hard for. And where's God now? Please, don't forget the backdrop of His love. And the question becomes, are you willing to trust to God who makes you wait? Are you willing to trust a God 
who makes you wait, who's working on his timetable, not ours. Jesus waits four days in John chapter 11 so that the, you know, the smell of death is unmistakable. He wants people to know who he is. He wants people to know the difference that he makes. And what appears to be cruel indifference, it's really unspeakable love. No wonder, John says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It reminds us to trust a God that's in control. And isn't it reassuring when our own individual story takes all these twists and turns and setbacks and frustrations and heartaches? Isn't it reassuring to know that Jesus still loves me? So, here's the entire sermon in in one sentence. Since God is God, and since He's in control, we should trust the one who knows the entire story. Since God is God, since He is in control, we should trust the one who knows the entire story. You know, in the movies, it takes about two hours for everything to get wrapped up, right? Everything gets settled in two hours. Everybody's questions get answered. Everybody's problems get solved. It takes about two hours for everybody to live happily ever after. But we don't live in a Hollywood fairy tale, do we? News flashed that you don't need a preacher to tell you life is hard. Life is frustrating. Life is confusing. It appears that evil still flourishes. Cancer still kills. People still lose their jobs. Drunks still cross the yellow line. People we love still die. And four days later, they're still dead. What you need to decide, and you need to decide it now. You need to decide it today. Is God still God? Is he still in control? And can I trust him with my story? You need to figure that out, and you need to decide that. Is God still God? Is he still in control? And can I trust him with my story? I think about times when I had to decide if I was going to trust God with my story. I think about his his pretty new parents, having a two-year-old daughter who's losing weight. She won't eat, and she can't sleep. And we take her to her pediatrician, we know something's wrong. And he runs a couple tests, and he does a couple things, and he comes out, it's on a Friday afternoon, and he tells us, I want you to get in your car, and I want you to take your daughter, and I want you to go straight to Tampa General. Don't go to Brandon, go straight to Tampa General. Don't go home. Don't stop anywhere on the way. There'll be people there waiting for you. And I think if John were writing that chapter of my story, I think John would have inserted, Jesus loved Maggie and Tim and Martha. I'm in a chapter right now, Martha and I both, and Marcia too, dealing with aging parents like so many of you are, and so many of you have been. It's hard. 
know, it's, it's, it's scary, it's, it's sad. But I think if John were writing this chapter of my story, I think he would write right in the middle. And Jesus loves Harold and Enola and Dorothy and all the families as well. You know, we're blessed with all these mountaintop experiences. And still, we all go through valleys. And I think it's in the valleys where we really learn to trust God. You think about whatever it is you're struggling with right now. Whatever it is that's keeping you awake at night. Whatever it is you're crying out to God about. You know, a marriage, a friend, a child, I don't know. But you keep telling God, God, the one you love needs you. <laughs> we need you here. I need you now. I think if John were writing your story, before he got to the valley, he would want you to remember something that's very important. So I'm going to ask you to do something with me this morning. You're not going to want to do it, but you have to trust me on this. We're going to read together out loud a paraphrase of John chapter 11, verse 5. But when we get to the blank, we're not going to read Martha and her sister and her brother Lazarus. When we get to the blank, I want you to say out loud your first name. We're going to say Jesus loves and then say your first name. We're going to say it out loud together. Got it? Ready? One, two, three. Jesus loves Tim. Do you believe that? In the middle of what you're going through right now, do you believe what you just said? Do you believe that the backdrop of your story, Jesus loves me, and he loves the people that I'm concerned about. And what appears to be our greatest setback might just be our greatest setup. God's earned our trust. It's time to trust Him. So since God is God, since He's in control, I'm going to trust Him with my entire story. Let's pray. Father, You spoke the world into existence. You parted the sea with a staff. You killed a giant with a stone. Lord, we come to you and we're asking you to give us the courage and give us the faith to trust you with all of our hearts to go all in. We don't want to lean on our own understanding. Help us in all our ways to acknowledge you because we know that you will make our paths straight. And we pray it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, those of you sharing with us online, if you have something going on in your life that you'd really like someone praying with you about, um, there'll be a link on, on the, the screen uh, to our website, and uh, you can get in touch with us there, and again, you can be as anonymous as you'd like to be, but we'd love to pray with you, pray for you, uh, help you in any way that we can. For those of us in the auditorium, the uh, elders will make themselves available right down here at the front of the auditorium at the close of our service today. Dave's going to get us ready to share Lord's Supper together.